From the Los Angeles Times, this is Coronavirus in California, Stories from the Frontlines. I'm Gustavo Arellano. It's Friday, May 1st, May Day. Today, whenever disaster befalls Southern California, whether it's an earthquake, a fire, a riot, a whatever, the writer who inevitably comes to mind is Mike Davis. His Jeremiads against the Lords of Los Angeles over the past three decades are controversial to some, brilliant to others, but are never boring because he tends to call things before they happen, like our current pandemic. In 2005, Mike wrote a book called The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu. It may not have had the same impact as his earlier works, City of Quartz and Ecology of Fear, but published as it was 15 years ago, The Monster at Our Door now comes off as prophecy. Uh Uh-oh. Blue Shield of California would like to take this moment to thank the mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, daughters, sons, friends, and heroes on the front line. This fight is tough, but so are you. And we're grateful for your courage and your dedication to keeping us all safe and healthy. Thank you. Mike, in your 2005 book, you warned that the world was on a cusp of a pandemic and ended with this line and question, really. Will we wake up in time? And here we are. How do you feel about that? Well, what we're living through right now is something that has been predicted for almost a generation. Since 2005, for instance, the United States has had a national strategic plan for avian flu. Although the coronavirus was a unexpected, though not entirely unworn, pathogen, everything about this pandemic corresponds to what had been planned by the government uh, for years. The Obama administration was very aggressive, confronted with the Ebola outbreak in expanding the surveillance system and in tightening up regulations for response. The great tragedy of this is that there's nothing really unexpected about this except for the totally incompetent response to the Trump administration. And it goes beyond this. Shortly after Trump was inaugurated, he began dismantling the very uh, institutions that Obama and earlier the Bush administration had created to face a pandemic. So we've had a criminal leadership from almost day one. Yeah, pandemics are they're a part of human history, but there's something about them that always seems to lull governments into a false sense of security. What do you think that is? Is it hubris, something else? Well, look, what's happened is really extraordinary. Basically, the international coordination and response to coronavirus has collapsed. The CDC, after its fiasco in February, trying to design a test kit, which turned out not to work, has been sidelined. The World Health Organization is largely sidelined and, of course, now defunded. The European Union, which has an agreement, individual states are responsible for health care, but there's a European Union convention on mutual aid and coordinated leadership and the result of the pandemic is totally ignored. Each country closed their borders and refused to send aid. The only country that sent aid to Italy when it was the world epicenter was China, which immediately sent plane loads of medical supplies and doctors. The United Nations has called for secession of wars and progress, ceasefires, 
but has also been totally ignored. So it's astonishing the extent to which the international organizations supposedly charged with responsibility for international coordination have simply been marginalized or worse. You've been doing a lot of writing about coronavirus for publications like In These Times, Jacobin Magazine. And one of the points that you make is drawing those parallels between what's going on now and what happened in 1918 with the Spanish flu. And I know the Spanish flu is personal for your family. Yeah, my mother had a little brother died of the Spanish flu, something she mourned all her life. But there were two Spanish flus. There's the Spanish flu that most people know a little bit about which started off, it's odd that it's called the Spanish flu because it first outbreaks were registered in Kansas, an army training camp. They'd probably call it the Kansas flu. But we know about its devastation in the United States and on the Western Front during the First World War. What I think most of us are unaware of, those of us who've read histories of the Spanish flu, is that 60% of the mortality occurred in Western India. And in Persia, some 20 million people died in India. It was a different pattern from that in the United States and Western Europe, where the flu was most deadly to young, vigorous uh, adults. When it reached Western India and it reached Persia, which was then under British occupation, it interacted with famine, malaria, existing conditions, and it became incomparably more deadly. The lesson to learn from that is that we should not expect that as now the coronavirus rages across Africa, Middle East, South Asia, places like Gaza, Haiti, that it will maintain the same pattern that it has here. Because we're in the United States and Western Europe, maybe 20 or 25 percent of the population are vulnerable to coronavirus because of pre-existing conditions or or their age. That becomes well over half, maybe even 70% of the population in the poor countries of, of the world. So in some sense, and this is an awful thing to say, the real massacre may just be beginning right now. And you're seeing that play out in a way in the er- at least in these early stages of coronavirus in the United States, where some of the most disproportionately affected communities are those communities of color. There is a uh, a horrible Nazi expression, probably the most evil term in the whole Nazi lexicon, and translated from German, it means lives not worthy of living. We've heard the most incredible evil things said by this administration's or its its allies. The lieutenant governor of Texas, for instance, Dan Patrick, has talked about, well, I'm an old guy and I know lots of other old people and we're willing to sacrifice ourselves if necessary to save the economy. Similar sentiments were put out by Boris Johnson's chief political advisor, who said, well, if a lot of Pensioners have to die, so be it, but we have to save the economy. Now, you compare that to what's happening in American nursing homes, where 10,000 people have already died and double, triple, who knows how many more will as the infection spreads. Compare that to what's happening 
in communities of color across the country where the, the incidence of infection and the death rates are much higher than, than elsewhere. So if you look at these protests, which are organized by Trump's backers, like the billionaire Robert Mercer and the people who were the puppeteers of the Tea Party movement, if you look at these back-to-work movements. Basically, they're movements that are designed to save profits at the cost of all the vulnerable groups in American society. There are 10 and a half million American workers over 65. Should they be going back to work? How about the millions of people with diabetes? So I'm claiming nothing less than this is a kind of Nazi logic operating in the Trump administration and in its counterparts across the Atlantic. This LA Times podcast is presented by Blue Shield of California. The fight is tough, but so are you. Thank you, Frontline. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content. Mike, describe the responses by L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti and California Governor Gavin Newsom. Well, I mean, they've been much better than the absent federal response. But they also highlight everything that's wrong with the political economy and social welfare in Southern California, because the initial successes in reducing death rates and so on you know, these are not figures we should applaud, but much better than in other states. We have to realize that this will return, and it may return again and again, become a chronic seasonal disease. And although the governor's response, I think, deserves respect, and probably the mayor's as well, unless we begin to fix public health in California, unless we begin to repair our county public hospital systems, unless we are ready to ensure that all health workers have the protection they need so that going to work and saving lives is not putting your own life or your family's life at risk. These are all tasks that remain and need to be aggressively undertaken, starting now and not waiting for this pandemic to end because we don't know when it will end or how. Your works have always been almost like challenges, especially to the working classes, to not accept the way things are. So what would you say right now to those communities affected? What, what is the moment right now that they could seize to try to make a better world for themselves with coronavirus? Well, we have to protest. There's a volcano of anger in this country that's going to explode over the next year. And I think we're going to see a huge upsurge in, in social movements. But right now, the chief demand has to be that everybody who works in the so-called essential economy has protective gear. A second demand would be nursing homes and prisons. People must be saved. And it's extraordinary because back at the end of February, beginning of March, the unions which represent nursing home workers were pointing out that these homes were by and large unprofitable businesses 
manned by people who work for a minimum wage and are forced to often moonlight in other nursing homes. So there was a chain reaction happening. The federal government should have stepped in immediately with a task force to deal with nursing homes, likewise with jails. Can't afford to wait around anymore debating algorithms on who gets released and who doesn't. Otherwise, prisons are turning into essentially uh, execution chambers, particularly because of the high rate of prisoners in the California correction system who have serious pre-existing conditions, an incredible number of sick people in our prisons. So we need to see a return of protests and activity and, and solidarity. And I've argued, and some people would consider this profoundly irresponsible, but I argue there's no reason that we can't go into the streets carefully obeying social distancing, not menacing ourselves or, or anyone else. But as you know, Amazon employees have begun to strike, or the health workers who went out in the streets to oppose these totally obnoxious people and enormous pickup trucks yelling at them to go back to communist China. We need to raise the level of protest. In your book, Ecology of Fear, you talk about the different disasters that have either stricken Southern California or will strike California. And of course, there's that famous chapter where you do almost an index of how L.A. got destroyed in fiction by various ways. One of the interesting things is that it seems plagues have never really weighed down on the Southern California imagination. It's like we accept, okay, the big one might destroy us, fire might destroy us, but disease hasn't really popped up. Why do you think that is? Well, because... The amnesia that tends to follow epidemic disease outbreaks. I mean, almost 700,000 people died in 1918, but only Catherine Ann Porter in a famous novella really preserved the memory of that in American literature. A memory of that was erased almost as soon as uh, the Spanish flu had ended. Likewise, with disasters, we tend to repress the memory, and above all, the lessons of disaster. But we press it because also the political system represses it. For instance, after the last great earthquake in Southern California, State Senator Tom Hayden proposed a bill that would dictate the retrofitting of all the hospitals in the state. But the Hospitals Association successfully opposed it. And within months, we'd forgotten the destruction that had been wracked by that earthquake or our vulnerability. I mean, one of the things I argued in, in that book, Ecology of Fear, is actually there's a disaster deficit in California. If you compare the record of earthquakes, floods, great storms, to the record that scientists study, we've actually been in a period of relatively low-frequency activity. And I argued that, in fact, we've been dulled by a sense of security and a total misunderstanding of the nature of the geological and biological environment when we live. I mean, can you imagine what would happen if the big one happened now? <laughs> the best words to end this interview on. Thanks so much for this interview, Mike. Thank you, Gustavo. Keep safe. And that's it for today's episode of Coronavirus in California, Stories from the Front Lines. Thanks for listening. Do you have a story you want to share with us? Call our hotline at 213-986-5652 and leave us a message. That's 
986-5652 or email me, gustavo.ariano at latimes.com. This podcast was hosted by me, Gustavo Ariano. Our producers are Paige Heimson and Stan Lee. Our senior producer is Rena Palta, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. If you like our podcast, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special gracias to Julia Turner, Shelby Grad, Hector Becerra, and Clint Schaff. For the latest coronavirus stories by my LA Times colleagues, including an up-to-the-minute tracker of cases across California, don't forget to visit our website. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the LA Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Stay safe, have a good weekend, and see you on Monday.